ears, and I know their hearts, and I know the wisdom that God has placed in them, uh, and I think they're going to be a great addition uh, to our elder board. So you've got to come back next week and find <laughs> out uh, who those people are. Well, today, friends, we are in 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 9. Um, in your bulletin, it says that we are going to make it through chapter 10. That is a lie. Um, in the bulletin, it mentioned Mercy Me at 5 and Jeremy Camp at 6. That was a lie. They're both my mistakes. Uh, I apologize. We are not going to make it all the way to chapter 10. Uh, we're only going to get through a portion of chapter 9 today. Uh, and then next week, we'll finish up 9 and get to the rest of chapter 10. Now, in chapter 9, chapter 9 in many ways serves again as a transition chapter. We are moving from eight chapters of genealogical records, and remember, they were past records. These were the people that used to live in the land. These were the people that used to live in these particular locations. These are the people that used to be the kings or used to be the priests and, and so on and so forth. Chapter 9 is going to take us from the past and bring us to the present, and it's going to look at those people who were the first to come back. So here you have Babylon and people saying, hey, we can make our way back to Israel. What do you say? Do you want to go? And there were a lot of people that were looking at it and saying, no, not really. I mean, the place is destroyed there. At least here I got a house. At least here there's streets and running water and toilets or whatever it may be, something like that. I don't really want to go back. But then there were others that said, you know, it may be a dump. It may be in ruins, but it's where I want to go because it's our home and it's the promised land that God had for us. And if God is going to pour out a blessing, that's the place that he's going to pour out a blessing on the nation of Israel. Chapter 9 looks at those that were the first to go back to that particular area. So if you look at chapter 9, verse 2, well, I'll read verse 1. It says, Now, so all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Remember, this book is written after the exile in Babylon as the people are returning to Israel. And so it speaks there of the, that they went into Babylon for 70 years. Verse 2, now the first to dwell again in their possession in their cities were Israel, the priest, the Levites, and the temple servants. And so we are introduced here now, and we're going to have a long list of names. So I'm sure when I said we were done with the genealogies, you were thinking, great, no more names, you know. But look at verse 3 for a second. It says, now some of the people were Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Uthai, the son of Amahud, Omri, the son of Imri, and so on and so forth. We have a whole other chapter of names. We'll begin next week with a small section of names as well. So, and then we'll be done with names until the last couple chapters of the books. Um, but we have all of these names here. And the first group of people that we are looking at that are going to return to rebuild the work of God are going to be those that are associated with the work of God. So those that are associated with the temple uh, in one way or another, whether they be the priest or whether they be the gatekeepers uh, or whatever it may be. And we'll look at each of those names today. I think as we look at this, we can say, you know, this is a helpful reminder for us of the, prior, the, the necessary priority of God's work in any rebuilding process that may be out there. And so here is a nation that because of their sin had descended to a particular place so bad where God had to bring them out of the land to bring about a judgment on those people. And now they're going to rebuild that work. And God's going to do that work within them. You know, you consider the United States. Just recently, my wife and I, we were sort of talking about what life was like 25 years ago when we were about 15 years old. We're 40 right now. 
that's true. You, you chuckle like, yeah, he's probably 50. No, I'm only 40. Um, <laughs> but about, 50, about 25 years ago, when we were teenagers, and we thought we knew everything, and we were just sort of like figuring everything out, we had observations about what the United States looked like. And there were things that were sort of coming down the pike in the mid-80s and the very early 90s that, you know, raised our concern. As people that are seeking to follow Christ in a so-called Christian nation, you know, we would look and we're like, how, if this is a Christian nation, how could that, did you see that show? I remember when The Simpsons came out on TV, and I know some of you are big fans of The Simpsons, but I remember being shocked by some of the things that the cartoon figures would say. Now, cartoons are on. Most people sit their kids in front of a cartoon. I would never put my kids in front of The Simpsons, and that was back in 1990 or something like that. Now, The Simpsons look like a piece of cake on TV. I mean, it's like, that's a wholesome family show these days, <laughs> right? On TV, con considering some of the things that have come down the pike since then. And I, I just consider the, the mentality of thinking. I remember some of the special lectures that I received in college, important lectures that the dean of the school or uh, the head of the education department felt needed to be shared with us that were going to become teachers. And they, it was presented to us sort of from the perspective of, look, now, we're just trying to help expand your mind a little bit. We know that this isn't mainstream, this isn't what most people are thinking, but we just want to expand your mind a little bit. And so I would sit there, and I remember saying to myself, I don't want my mind expanded in that direction. I don't agree with that thinking. But it was presented in such a way, some of you may agree, some of you may not agree. Today, it's fact. This is the way we all think about these particular issues. And if you don't think this way about these issues, then you are a hate monger or you're a person. And how quickly the United States and how rapidly and fast the United States has descended, and we are not a Christian culture anymore. You know, we make this statement in the United States, one nation under God. Quite honestly, this is not a nation that is under God. It's sad. I love this nation, but I think it's important that we come and we realize that fact. And we begin to approach stuff that just because we live in a nation where the majority of people will go out shopping from, I guess, uh, Halloween through December 25th for Christmas shopping, uh, the majority of the nation will go out and do it. That does not mean that the majority of this nation knows the Lord Jesus. And it does not mean that the majority of this nation will die and will go to heaven. The vast majority of people that we interact with don't know the Lord. And they need to come to know the Lord. And so as I consider a nation like Israel that has descended so rapidly, so quickly, and God brought about a judgment on that particular nation, but now there was going to be a restoration of that nation. As I consider that, I consider the United States as well. And if there is ever going to be a restoration to the place where the majority of people in this country at least are thinking about who God is and submitting their lives uh, to that God, if we're ever going to come back to that place of being restored, then I think we need to begin the same place that the nation of Israel began. And the nation of Israel, they didn't begin with a road crew, and they didn't begin with, by running septic and you know, making sure that everything was safe and healthy, but they began, began with the work of God. They began with the temple workers. They began with the priests. And I think in our nation as well that we, if we're going to return, if we are going to be a culture that actually promotes a relationship with God and accountability to God, then that needs to come from the inside out. And it, begins to, it needs to begin with the work of God in people's lives. Change must come from the inside out. The Lord God must heal the heart of a person or a nation. The heart of a person or a nation 
before we will ever see lasting change in our community. And so that is why we are a people, and we are going to be this upcoming um, next five, six months, we are going to be a pre people as a body of believers that cry out for the lost. Because we know that the lost are a people that cannot see spiritually. You and I were there. We were all in that place where somebody presented the gospel to us perfectly logically. And yet we said, oh, I don't think so. Doesn't make any sense to us. But then God opened up our eyes to see. And as it says in John chapter 3, we were born again with a new spirit and we were given a life so we could see and we can understand. That's a spiritual warfare. That's a spiritual battle. And so we are going to be a people that are collectively, not just on our own, you know, here and there, but collectively we are going to be crying out for the lost that they might come and they might see the Lord. Is that good? You're with me. So it starts from the inside out. Now, those who returned to support the work of God, we read in verse 3, they came from four of the tribes. They came from the tribe of Judah. Well, we know it's five, actually, and I'll explain that in a moment. But in addition to the Levitical tribe, they come from the tribe of verse 3, Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And so in addition to the tribe of Levi, which we read about in verse 2, we have these folks that are coming alongside and saying, how can I help? Well, I can't be a priest, you know, and, and similarly, you want to take it to us, you know, maybe I'm not the preacher, or I'm not the pastor, or whatever, but how can I help? What part can I play? What role can I play? And so we look at verse 4 through 6, I'll read it to you. It says, Uthai, the son of Imahud, the son of Omri, son of Imri, son of Bani, from the sons of Perez, the son of Judah, and of the Shilonites, Isaiah, the firstborn, and his sons, of the sons of Zerah, Jewel, and their kinsmen, 690, of the Benjaminites, Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Hodaviah, the son of Hasunua, something like that. If you look at verse 2, I think we have this particular slide here. If you look at verse 2, um, or excuse me, verse 3, slide 2, it speaks of Judah. The first name that is a son of a son of a son of a son of who was the son of Judah is a man by the name of Uthai. In verse 5, we're introduced to what are called the Shilonites. Now, the Shilonites were those descendants of a man by the name of Shelah, S-H-E-L-A-H. Uh, it doesn't tell us here, but we know that Shelah was a descendant of Judah as well. Those Shilonites were Ju people from Judah, so this man by the name of Isaiah, the firstborn, he was a descendant of Judah. And if you look down a little bit further, you have the sons of Zerah, Z-E-R-A-H, and it speaks of Jewel and their kinsmen. Now, Zerah was one of the sons of Tamar, who you remember had a relationship with Judah. Remember, it was Judah's uh, daughter-in-law, and they, they had the sexual relations. We looked at that story. She became pregnant. One of her kids from that relation uh, was a man by the name of Zerah. So he's way back, thousands of years, or at least hundreds of years back. But from his family there comes this guy by the name of Jewel. I appreciate that because these are going to be, Jewel is going to be a people that is active in the house of God. Not coming from the very best uh, of beginnings, so to speak, sort of scandalous beginnings, and yet look how God can use that person. I appreciate that because I, I see my life. I see where I come from. Uh, I remember going to a, a reunion for, for a high school recently, a 20-year reunion, and I ran into one of my best friends from when we were young. Uh, and so that means he knows everything about me and where I come from and what I've done. And he says, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church. And this poor fella, you know, he did one of those, like, real. And he was, he's like, I probably shouldn't say, nah, -uh, or anything like that. So he said, I, I, 
I wouldn't have guessed that, you know, is what he said. You know, but God can use us. And so whatever your background is, whatever your past is, if you've been born again, the scripture says that you are a new creation in Christ and that God wants to do a great work through that. You are a trophy of his grace. The dirtier the past, the dirtier the background. The idea is this, the more you recognize the grace of God, did a a physician need to come to your house and to heal you because you were sick? Well, then you love that physician very much. And the more you realize and you recognize how good God has been in your life, the shinier of a trophy that you can be of his grace. And God uses people like that in a great way. We see that here with this fellow by the name of Jewel. Well, as you move on to verse 7, verse 7 introduces us to another group of four people, Salu, Ibnaya, uh, Meshulam, um, Elah. And each of those men, as you can see in verse 7 there, they are of the Benjaminites. So we looked at the people that were from Judah, and now we have this group of uh, four men or so that are from the tribe of Benjamin. Now we have a number, 956, that's a total number of people that are from that tribe with those men that I just listed to you as sort of the leaders. And remember, 956 out of millions of Jews. But these are the people that God stirred in their hearts and they said, you know what, this is a young work, this is a new work, it's a work that I want to be a part of. How could God use me? All the sacrifices that are associated with it, think, think about a brand new church or a church like this, uh, where we're setting up every Sunday morning, and the people that say, let me be a part of it, I'll do that. I'll create God's sanctuary, if that's what it means. The people that break down this stuff and put it away and put it back together the next week, the people that are out there that are doing this and that, all these folks that are saying, how can I be a part of what God is going to do, a brand new work, and they want to be a part of it. 956, it says, from the tribe of Benjamin. There were 690 from the tribe of Judah. Now, of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, that verse 2 said, um, also came back, their names aren't listed. And that's okay, I think, because God knows who they are. We may not know, we may not care, quite honestly, what their names were, uh, but the Lord knows who they were. And, you know, we serve the Lord not for, to get into some book. We serve him not to be recognized, you know, and have uh, our name mentioned in one place or another. We just simply serve him because we love him. And we want him to be promoted. We want him to be honored. Uh, and we want him to be blessed. And if we can drift off into the secret place, then that's fine, as long as the Lord is lifted up and glorified. And remember what John the Baptist said when people were saying, John, all these people that used to follow you are now going to follow Christ. You know, what should we do about this? Should we stop them? And John the Baptist said, no, I came to preach about Christ. They should go follow him. And then he said, if the Son of Man is lifted up, all men are going to be drawn unto himself. And this idea that he must increase is what John actually said, and I must decrease. I appreciate that so very much. Well, as we move on to verse 10, we're introduced now to, uh, to actual Levite people. We know they're Levites because it says in verse 10 that they're priests. And it says, now of the priest, Jediah, Jehorib, Jachin, and Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Miriel, the son of Ahitub, who was the chief officer of the house of God. And Adiah, the son of Jeroram, son of Pasher, son of Machijah, son of Masai, the son of Adael, son of Jehazareth, son of Meshulam, son of Meshimeleth, son of Immer, and besides their kinsmen, heads of their father's houses, there was 1,760 mighty men for the work of the service of the house of God. So we are given the names 
of some of these 1,760 uh, priests here. Uh, as we see in verse 10, four of them, Jediah, Jehoriab, Jachin, and Azariah. And as we see in verse 12, Adiah and Masai. And then again, the total number is 1,760. We continue on in verse 14, and this time we read of the Levites. It says, Now of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Azikram, the son of Hashabiah, and the sons of Merari, and Bakbakar, Haresh, Galel, and Mataniah, the son of Mika, son of Zikri, son of Asaph, and Obadiah, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Galal, the son of Jaduthan, and Barakiah, the son of Asa, the son of Elkanah, who lived in the villages of the Netephathites. Now, you might hear, we just did the priest in verse 10, and now we're doing in verse 14 the Levites. I thought that the, the priests were the Levites. Um, and uh, therefore, you know, what, what's going on here? Well, it's true um, that the priests were Levites, but not true that all Levites were necessarily priests. There was a specific group of the Levites that could go on to be priests. Those that were not priests were assigned to temple duty, and they had responsibilities associated with the temple. Moses introduced this to us, as the Lord introduced it to him, in Numbers chapter 3. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him, that they keep they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle was the precursor to the temple. But essentially, the rules that applied to one applied to the other. It goes on and says, Now they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over all the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons they are wholly given to him among the people of Israel. Take notice of that last verse. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron. And the idea uh, is that these men would serve the high priest, Aaron, and his descendants, and the priest. You might think of them, honestly, you might think of them as assisting pastors. People whose job it was to help the pastor or the priest with the work that the Lord has called them to do in that particular congregation. So these men, it was their job to make sure that the work of God ran smoothly and it enabled the pastor to do the, or the priest to do the work that God had called them to do. Now we have some names here listed. Verse 14, the first name is this man by the name of Shemaiah. And you see that Shemaiah was of the clan, as you, you read through his son, his son, his son, you see that he was of the clan right at the end of verse 14 of Merari. Now remember, Merari was one of the three sons of Levi, the original Levi. He had the son Kohath, he had the son Merari, and he had the son Gershon. And each one of those clans had specific responsibilities. The Gershonites carried the canopy, or the tent, of the tabernacle. The Kohathites carried all the furniture of the temple or the tabernacle. And the Merarites, who we're reading about here, their job was to essentially carry the fence pieces or the, the boards that were a part of the tabernacle. And so that is what this group of Levites, beginning with this man by the name of Shemaiah, are going to do. They're going to carry the boards of the tabernacle. Now that it's a temple, they'll be given similar tasks associated with that. Verse 15, it lists for us a man by the name of Bakbakar. That's a great name. Uh, Horesh, Galal, and Mataniah. 
they are um, key figures, and they're not the only ones there, but they're key figures of this group of Levites. And then verse 16, two more men, Obadiah and Berechiah. So these seven men, they served the priests to see that the daily tasks of the temple were functioning properly so that the priests wouldn't have to get distracted with that other stuff and they could focus on the task that the, and the responsibilities that the Lord had given them. Now as we move on to verse 17, we come to the conclusion, if you will, of these people that came back, the first people to come back that we read about in verse 2. And now we are introduced to a group of people that are called gatekeepers. King James uses the word porter. You may have that there. Um, other versions uses the word doorkeeper. But the Hebrew word that is used here, whether it be translated in our English versions as porter or doorkeeper, as gatekeeper, uh, a variety of different words are used throughout the Old Testament for it. But these men, essentially, they served as guards. If you, you want to think of them, they were sort of bouncers at the temple or at the tabernacle. And they made sure that the right people got in and the wrong people were kept out. Now, you might hear that and you say, that's terrible. But they kept the wrong people out for their own protection. Because remember, if you went into uh, the temple in an unholy state, you weren't ceremonial clean. Or let's say you said, you know what, I've always been curious. What goes on back there behind that curtain? What right do they have to close that off to the rest of us? And they only let one man go back there once a year. I'm going back in. These men would say, no, you're not for your own good going back to the Holy of Holies because you'll be struck down dead. And so they would keep you out of that. That was the, sort of the role of these gatekeepers. They had the ministry of opening doors. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Here's a bulletin. Uh, perhaps something like that. Or they had the ability to close the doors to keep those who were unclean uh, and thus forbidden to enter to keep them from. Only those that were ready to, to serve and worship the Lord for their own protection were allowed to go in. Now, some of you might look at that job and say, that job would stink. I'd hate that job. I wouldn't want to be a gatekeeper. And I understand that. I don't know if I'd want to be a gatekeeper necessarily either, but there were some great benefits to being a gatekeeper. For instance, they spent their entire time, they set up houses right around the temple itself, but they spent their entire time, 24 hours a day for the period of time that they were on duty, around the work of God. And have you been on a mission trip or an outreach project and how invigorating and how exciting it is to be dedicated to the work of God for a week or for 14 days or for 10 months uh, or whatever it may be. It is, uh, it's fantastic. There's great joy in it. You're just enthused and uh, these guys had that every day of their lives. They got to hear the word of God as it was proclaimed and as it was declared. They got to consider carefully and slowly the sacrificial system and what was going on there and watching it and not sort of a quick, I'm here for five minutes and kind of take notice of it and think I got it all in, but they got to think about it and to ponder it and to look at it and the work that God did in their hearts there. They regularly saw lives impacted. They saw people that came trembling, wondering if God would atone for their sins through the offering of a sacrifice. And they got to essentially hear a priest say, you guys can go in peace. And they got to see people leave with the burdens of their sin left behind and then they could walk in the freedom that comes when we've been washed and cleansed and forgiven of our sins. These guys got to see that. It was these guys that David referred to in Psalm chapter 84 when he said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell 
in the tents of wickedness. That's who he was referring to. So it was a great honor for these people. They took their responsibility very, very seriously. And we read about them in verse 17. It says, Now the gatekeepers were Shalom, Achib, Talmon, and Ahiman, and their kinsmen. Shalom was the chief. And until then, they were in the king's gate on the east side as the gatekeepers of the camps of the Levites. Interesting, that east gate. You know who's going to come through that east gate one day? The king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so maybe each day they sat there and they just said, maybe today will be the day. Not fully understanding or knowing when the Messiah was going to come and how he was going to enter in. But maybe each day as they sort of got up, they said, today could be the day that our Messiah returns. We go on our trip to Israel and we sit just outside of that eastern gate. And it's all, board, it's all uh, cinder blocked up now. Right on the outside of it is a Muslim cemetery, uh, just sort of a hodgepodge of, of tombstones or whatever. But that's not going to be a problem for the Lord. He's going to figure out a way to make his way through the cinder-blocked wall. But the reason that the Muslims cinder-blocked it up, the Muslim leadership is, is because they knew that the Jewish people, that the Christian people, everybody puts emphasis that the Messiah, whether they believe it or not, I don't know, but everybody puts emphasis that the Messiah is going to come through that gate. Why don't we just uh, cinder-block the thing up? As if that's going to stop the king of kings uh, from entering in. But that's the gate that he's going to enter in. That's the gate that these particular folks are guarding. We're standing at, uh, it's, I think I left off, it says, Now Shalom, the son of Kor, son of Ibasaph, son of Korah, and the kinsmen of his father's houses, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was the chief officer over them in time past, that was about a thousand years before, the Lord was with him. Now, Zechariah, the son of Meshillamiah, was a gatekeeper at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen as gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. They were enrolled by their genealogies in their villages. David and Samuel, and that, again, that's 600 years earlier. David and Samuel, the seer, established them in their office of trust. So they and their sons were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord. That is, the house of the tent as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south, and their kinsmen who were in their villages were obligated to come in every seven days in turn to be with these, for the four chief gatekeepers who were Levites were entrusted to be over the chambers and the treasures of the house of God. And they lodged around the house of God, for on them lay the duty of watching, and they had charge of opening it every morning. Now, in addition to these gatekeepers, in verse 28, we read that some of them had charge of the utensils of service, for they were required to count them and when they were brought in and take out. Now, we think of utensils, we might think of knives and forks and spoons and, and things like that, but this word utensils is used uh, like four different ways in the Old Testament, all referring to things that are associated with the tabernacle of the temple. Uh, sometimes the word is translated the uh, same Hebrew word is translated the furniture of the temple, like the Ark of the Covenant, the, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the bronze basin, and the bronze altar. All these pieces of furniture that were in the temple, uh, these men cared for them in one way or another. Um, other places, the word is used to speak of ornaments or jewelry um, that was associated with the, the priestly garbs uh, and their outfits. Um, sometimes it's, you know, like a, a ladle, that is used that had to do with the offering that was brought or it's like a big fork of sorts um, for the priest and the offering 
that they would be associated with people as they would come. So all sorts of things are associated with it. And these men, they have responsibility over those things. Make sure they're ready to go and they can be used so that the work of God uh, is not hindered. It was the job of this group to care for these items and make sure they were prepared for and used for the service of the Lord. Now, beginning in verse 33, we read that some of these Levites served in the role of temple singers for the purpose of leading people into worship. Again, as we mentioned just a little while ago, a few weeks back, uh, the high calling of our worship leaders. Not just people with talent necessarily or some skill that can sing nicely and it's fun for us to watch them, but men and women, young people even, that are sold out to the Lord and they are entering into his presence in worship and they're ushering us into that presence as well. So very important. That's why I'll be gathering with the worship leaders and the tech team people and all those folks uh, Tuesday night of this week because I want to convey to them the heart of God for that ministry and that this isn't just a performance ministry, but it's that people that are going before the presence of the Lord and being used by the Lord to help the congregation be ushered into his presence. Now, as we consider this chapter as a whole, or I can't help but turn my attention to the New Testament concept of the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul, in a couple of different places, he refers to the church as the body of Christ. And notice these things that he says, and then kind of consider what we're reading about here in this Old Testament story here. You have the tabernacle, you have the priest and their responsibility, you have the gatekeepers, you have the Levites that are in charge of uh, the utensils and the furniture and all this stuff. Everybody is sort of playing their part. So keep that in mind as I read these verses. This is from Romans chapter 12. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. And he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, well then in proportion to our faith. If it's service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a more lengthy portion that I want you to see. So you find your four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you hit 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul addresses this issue of a body working together in a little more detail. Starting in verse uh, 14, it says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. 
and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with a greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And verse 27, And now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now as I read the 1 Corinthians passage, I see two problems with the way apparently some of these Christians were viewing the body of Christ. The first problem that I see that Paul addresses is that some of the people in the church see themselves as far too important to the body. This place really needs me and so on. Others don't realize how important they are. Some in the church look at others and they say, you know, I'm a hand. That guy over there, he's just a calf muscle. We don't really need that guy. That's how some people look at other people uh, in the congregation, at least here, maybe, hopefully not at Calvary Mercer. Others in the church will look at themselves and they'll think something like this, you know, I don't really have anything to offer. It's not like I'm an eyeball or something good or something important. I'm just, you know, a little pinky toe or something like that. I'm worthless. I'm not really of any valuable in this particular uh, body of believers. And the problem with both of those forms of thinking is that it prevents the body of Christ from working the way that God designed the body of Christ to work. Each one of us, and this is your takeaway today, and the lesson I think that we we see um, given to us through the First Chronicles passage, is that each one of us is a vital part of the work that God intends to accomplish in our community. And so the question that we should be walking out here asking ourselves, when we have some quiet time, uh, you know, whether it's in our own car, uh, because we don't have crazy kids, uh, or it's home, you know, when you go into the bathroom and you get five minutes, you know, by yourself, uh, whatever it may take you there. Uh, The question is, what's my part? What's my place in the body of Christ? And specifically, what's my place at Calvary Chapel, Mercer County? What part do I play? There are a lot of people that ask me all the time, how do I become a member? Of Calvary Chapel. I want to become a member of Calvary Chapel. What do I need to do? Well, the first thing that I would say to them is, are you a member of God's church? Are you a born-again believer? Are you going to heaven? Because first off, if you're a member of this church, but you've never been born again by the Spirit of God, this church will do nothing for you. It'll be a nice place to gather on a Sunday morning and meet nice people, but it'll do nothing about your eternal destiny. And so the first thing you need to do is join God's church, the bigger church, outside of this particular unique body of believers. But the second thing that I would address or I would answer with that particular person that says, I want to become a member of Calvary Chapel, is I would say to them, membership is in the heart. You become a member of Calvary Chapel when you have determined that this is the place that God wants to plant me, that this place can invest into my life and help me grow in my relationship with him. You make that determination. And when you have made that determination that, you know what, this is the place for me, then you sort of go to the next step. And the next step is I would ask the question of why. Why does God want you to become a member, so to speak, of Calvary Chapel? Why why is God planning you here? And again, you should ask that question, what role will I play? Or ask this question, how will this body of believers be better off because I am a member and I am a participant of it than if I wasn't a member of a, and a participant of this. Let me quote again the Apostle Paul. 
This is from Ephesians chapter 4. He said, And the Lord gave the apostles, the prophets, the prophets, I mean, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom, listen to this, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body to grow. And so this congregation, if the part that God has led you to play in it is not being met, then this body is weaker than it could be with what God wants to do. Every part, has, every uh, member, member by, I'm talking about physical body part, the hand, the foot, um, the knee, whatever it may be, every part has to play its part for the body to work properly. And that is what a healthy church is. When each member is exercising their gifts as God directed. So when you volunteer to hold babies back in the Sunday school area um, there, and we got a lot, I don't know what's going on in this church, but you guys are doing something. Um, but when you volunteer to go back there and to hold babies, you're not just trying to keep a kid quiet for an hour and kind of serve out your prison sentence for the week or whatever that you have to serve there. But what you're doing is you are enabling a weary mom and a weary dad to have an hour of their week to come and sit and be refreshed in the Word of God. That is how you are contributing to the body working properly. When a person joins the setup or the breakdown crew on Sunday morning, they're not just people that are coming and stacking chairs, but they are people that are establishing, if you want to call this, the house of God so that others can come in and they can hear the word of God go forth and they can sit amongst the fellowship of other believers and they can come into an intimate place of worship unto the God of heaven. Here in a community center, that doesn't typically happen here on a uh, Tuesday afternoon, but it becomes a special place as people uh, join those particular crews. When you volunteer to hand out bulletins or you become a welcoming face at the info table, or you become a part of our new group that we're going to raise that are going to be parking lot attendants and welcoming people. And when people see your smiling face and your friendly words that you share to them, what you essentially say to them with a simple smile on your face is that this is a safe place, it is a welcoming place where you can let your guard down and hear what God has to say to you. That's a vital part within the body of Christ. And as each part is playing its part, the body is healthier. Perhaps God would have you become an intercessor on behalf of others by joining our prayer teams that we have here at Calvary. Maybe he would have you volunteer to just to do something like bring desserts. That's a theme, apparently, that I'm conveying. But to bring desserts to a home fellowship. Say, so, you know what, you guys open your house. I'll make the desserts. You shouldn't have to be bothered with that. Let me be the guy that, and the gal that provides that. Maybe God has made it financially possible for you to send someone on a scholarship to one of our upcoming mission trips or to the Financial Peace University class or some other way like that. Maybe that's how God is going to use you to strengthen this entire body. Or maybe even this one. We have all these college students that are going to be coming back to this area. And, and people have asked, by the way, and I'll tell you now, people have asked, are we only going to do one service or anything? We're going to continue to do two services. And the main reason why is because we get 40 or 50 college students for 10 months out of the year, eight months out of the year. And so it would just be crazy if we didn't. But all of these college students are coming back. And I don't know about you, but dorm food, they, they've, they've made it a lot nicer than when many of us went to college, but nonetheless, it's still dorm food. 
And you know what? Maybe you could be a person in a college kid's life or a few of them. You don't want to freak them out by just inviting one. But invite like three or four of them and say, hey, why don't you guys come back to my house? We're going to have hoagies. We're going to watch a football game. And you can hang out with us. You could have a family dinner, so to speak. You can have some family time. You're away from home. Just a very practical way in which you can be used to minister and care for other people in the body. And the possibilities are certainly endless. And so again, I asked you what I asked earlier. What would God have for you to do? What part do you play in the life and the growth of this church? Let me end with these words. This is from John MacArthur. John MacArthur wrote a book. It's called The Body Dynamic, Finding Where You Fit in Today's Church. And these words say, God wants the church to be powerful and functioning well. To accomplish that, he designed a plan for the church. Besides the gifted leaders given to the church to make it really grow and have a unified witness, God has given every member a certain function or functions to contribute to the health of the body. The human body is an illustration of this. It has all kinds of organs that interact. And if just one of those doesn't function, the whole body will feel it. In the same way, every believer has a necessary ministry as a vital organ of the body of Christ. Any believer's failure to serve cripples the body to some degree. Heavy words to consider. This isn't one of those lessons where you walk out of there and say, that was nice, that was nice. But honestly, this is one of those lessons you walk out of there and you say, all right, Lord, I need to get right with you and I need to get real with you. What do you want me to do to build this body of believers up and strengthen the body of believers that are there? And let the Lord speak to you. He may speak to you today, and, but don't rush. Don't come running out here and say, I know what I'll do. I'll do that. You know, maybe the Lord might do that. But take some time, ponder it prayerfully, consider it. Speak to your husband, speak to your wife, speak to your kids, speak to other people in your family because the commitment that you're making will involve them as well. And see what the Lord would direct and have you to do. Somebody sent me an email and said, I want to get involved. What, sh what should I do? What do you need? And, and I said, look, I don't want you to do what we need. I want you to do what God has burdened your heart to do. So find that out. And that's hard. Now I've got to go pray and figure out what that is. You know what I mean? But find out what that is because you will be much more effective in that place than just simply being mandated to something you don't even want to do in the first place. Let the Lord lead you. Amen? Well, I went very long. Let me close this in prayer. Sorry, Jeff Simpson. It was uh, your family's fault. <laughs> Father, I, uh, I am grateful for Jeff uh, and just his graciousness when I always go over. Lord, and uh, Father, I'm thankful for this church. Lord, uh, I appreciate so very much uh, the ministry that has gone on here and the opportunities and the way in which Lord Scott uh, taught me so well uh, to be a part of a body that is serving. And what is your role and what do you play? And Lord, I know that uh, so many here are being uh, led and directed. And Lord, it's just a, a good and exciting time. And Father, we pray for each of us as you speak to our hearts and you direct us. Lord, that we would have ears to hear and we would have uh, sort of willing feet, obedient feet to move as you go and you guide. Father, bless us as a congregation and work in us and, I don't know about more importantly, but certainly importantly, Lord, work through us that we might reach the lost of this community, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a great week. Get a donut. <laughs>